and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, and back with you once again for uh, the, uh, I believe, the first time in the month of April. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am uh, Mike the Legend, and we are back with you once again after we were off last week in observance of the Easter long weekend. Not that we are particularly religious folk, we just are suckers for a long weekend, and uh, we're back at it, and hope you all out there had a good, safe, and enjoyable Easter long weekend, enjoying it in whatever way you saw fit. Indeed, uh, and I am always the second voice in this program. This week is no exception. This week I'm Dennis, the man who can't think of a starker contrast in any in-memoriam day other than Prince Philip and DMX. <laughs> yes, um... Sad fans for both rap fans, or sad, sad news, I should say, for both fans of, you know, classic 90s gangster rap, as well as the British monarchy, <laughs> on the same day, which is weird enough. I would um, like to see a Venn diagram of uh, the fan bases for both to find out if there's any sort of overlap between them. Yeah. I mean, they were both pretty different people, with the possible exception of a couple of, you know, problematic intolerances they both might have had. Um, towards one or another group of people, but you know, one was very old, one was very young, one came from incredibly like lavish privilege and uh, an insanely posh lifestyle. One literally came from the streets and had to basically work his way up. Both were kind of embroiled in a lot of controversy throughout their whole lives, though. So I don't know. There are there's some similarities. Uh, some, yes, and then other starker contrasts where, you know, DMX for a lot of his life had to, uh, fight scrap and claw for, uh, uh, whatever he, he could get and had to earn. And, uh, Prince Philip was basically a kept man for the last, what, 60, 70 years? Yeah. Like, he didn't really have to do anything once he, uh, married the queen there, so. Yeah, even though I, yeah. If the crown is to be believed, I think he did some things, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> very stark contrast. I mean, uh, sad news to anyone who's a fan or whatever of either of them, but, you know, none of us knew any of those people, so I don't feel super bad. Of course, it's not like a close personal friend or anything, but yeah, condolences to the families of the people regardless, I suppose. Indeed, I believe that's the standard, uh, 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 message to be conveyed and uh, uh we send our hearts our thoughts and prayers out to those who are mourning their loss but uh those of us here on this program yeah we didn't know him no close connection we only uh knew of uh, DMX through his uh, contributions to the music landscape really over the past uh, what 20 25 years and yeah uh, i mean like i'd be lying if you know i i i said that you know i didn't know any or like any DMX songs i mean he was kind of like a big part of our generations, you know, when we were first going to bars when we were old enough, like, you know, a lot of his music and stuff was kind of popular at that time. So I'd be lying if I, you know, said that, you know, it, it didn't, you know, make me a little bit sad for mourning the nostalgia loss kind of thing, but that's about it. So for me anyways, yeah. A, a place uh, in history and, uh, uh, I mean, given his passing, I uh, uh, actually came across a uh, bit of an audio documentary on him on a local radio station the other day when I was driving around and uh, learned from it that his first five albums all went platinum and all debuted at number one on some kind of billboard chart, which is a ridiculous accomplishment. Yeah. 
It definitely is. So kudos to uh, him for that. And then, uh, and then once his popularity in the music landscape kind of started to wane, he, uh, pulled back from that and put more time and effort into his family, which, uh, is a, uh, robust family. <laughs> Absolutely. He had some, what was it? 13 kids across or 15 kids or something across, well, not across, but with nine different women. Yeah. So, that, that's a, that's a busy man. <laughs> yes. A biz a yeah. man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. And on um, the flip side of that is Prince Philip, who did not have 15 kids with nine different women. And four with one. Uh, yeah. I mean, good enough, I suppose. And <laughs> I mean, he retired from royal duty services uh, a number of years ago. Uh, but at the same time, 99, that's a, that's a ripe old age. Uh, yeah. I don't know, don't know how many of us are going to, uh, uh, make it to 99. Yeah. I mean, everyone, God willing, but you know, it's, uh, not everyone ha- has the, the access to the resources and stuff that Prince Philip had. So yeah, uh, that is true. So, uh, yeah, bit of a mixed bag. I think the comment I made to you the other day was, uh, just to highlight the contrast is, I, I can't really think of a more diverse set of notable names to pass away in the same day, short of there being a day when like a, a Pope and a pimp would have died. Yeah, exactly. Or like some serial killer and like, you know, Gandhi or something like <laughs> or some people of that, you know, those degrees of, uh, you know, notoriety basically. So Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're talking like opposite ends of the spectrum, like diametrically opposed to each other. Yeah, in, in multiple different ways. Yeah. So it's uh, just a weird day all around. Uh, perhaps you out there have been taking the time to uh, just go back and revisit some old DMX albums or uh, going back and rewatching old clips of uh, um, notable British events and milestones on YouTube or something like that, or watching The Crown on Netflix. Yeah. Whatever uh, you're doing to get uh, yourself through these times, uh, uh, keep on doing it, and uh, we'll keep on doing our thing, which is uh, nine times out of ten talking about video game-related content, and we have some of that for you this week, don't we? We sure do, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, well, it's, yeah, we do. This one is kind of a little bit of an asterisk on that, because, <laughs> you know... When you think of video games, when, and you think of video game history, you're gonna think of Atari at some point, because they were very notable back in the early 80s, with that first wave of video games when they first got popular, with Pong and the arcades, and, you know, eventually being one of the, the most popular first forays into the home video game market with the Atari 2600 and things like that. But, uh, these days, Atari is not, like, Atari is just a name owned by a shell of a corporation, as we said multiple different times. And not just a shell of a corporation, but like, kind of a bit of a sketchy shell of a corporation, if we're being honest, because it seems like the, the shell of this corporation, who's interested in basically only licensing out the name, attaches themselves to all sorts of different sketchy acronyms and current buzz terms. At some point it was, uh, cryptocurrency was one of them where they were coming up with their own cryptocurrency. I believe a couple of weeks ago we were talking about online gambling. Yeah. They had some sort of crypto casino they were involved with. Yeah. And you know, before we've also talked about, you know, them licensing out 
you know, certain properties like the, like their, basically their, their equivalent of the, the Nintendo classic and things like that to kind of sketchy Chinese companies and stuff just to, which I, I think, I don't know if they ever came to fruition. Like some of them were released and they were kind of subpar, but yeah, basically the company who owns the name of Atari makes no bones about how they basically try to make as much as money, as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, while basically only using the name of Atari and almost no other money put into it other than that. And this latest, well, it's, first of all, it's a little bit of a rare day because we have arguably three ludicrous leadoffs, even though the next thing we'll talk about after this is a two-parter. That's uh, a thing, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they raised a lot of money using the latest arguably sketchy acronym buzz term that's out there right now. And the latest sketchy acronym sounding buzz term or tech buzz term that's going right now is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Uh, essentially digital files that have a blockchain uh, behind them to authenticate ownership and uh, creation and whatnot. And uh, uh, we spoke uh, a couple weeks ago on this program about the fact there was the giant art piece that was put up for auction and sold for something like $60 million as an NFT, a non-fungible token. Just a ridiculous amount of money that was changed hands in this transaction for that one NFT. And I think that's really crystallizing people's minds that, hey, there's money to be made in NFTs, which, of course, you and I both kind of realize, no, it's it's a trend. It's a thing. It's possibly even a bubble. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And hopefully this one latest thing involving this, you know, hollowed out husk of the former glory that was Atari is involved with really furthers to prove that point of this bubble aspect. Because frankly, this is like, we're into the point where, you know, it's, it's not the $60 million we saw, but it's still like a ludicrous amount of money for effectively nothing. Yeah, really nothing. Uh, digital assets is what people were paying for, and uh, Atari, the shell of Atari, uh, or as I often refer to it, the dead skin mask wearing husk that calls itself Atari, uh, yes. engaged in an NFT auction uh, earlier this month and managed to raise almost $100,000 uh, through the auction of uh, various NFTs, non-fungible tokens, uh, I believe raising something in the realm of 47.582 Ether because they do these transactions through Ether, which roughly equates to about 92000 almost $100,000 uh, in actual real dollars in U.S. currency, not Ether, because Ether is nebulous and also in the Ether. You can only do so much with it. Real hard dollars is what you and I still believe in. Yeah. And so Atari, the, the shell of Atari did this through the sale of uh, 10 cryptographically signed NFTs, each of them representing a 3D model of an Atari 2600. Uh, they were numbered, uh, the, or sorry, the cheapest of them sold for three and a quarter ether or roughly $6,300. Uh, the most expensive went for uh, 9.4395 ether or roughly $18,000. Uh, they also sold a set of 100 NFTs that represented red centipede cartridges, 
that were sold on a marketplace for the equivalent of $181 each. Uh, that brought in almost $18,000. And if you really wanted to, you could go find an actual centipede cartridge for Atari on eBay for way less than what you paid in ether for the digital asset of a red centipede cartridge. Yeah. It, uh, I, I think that fact may have been lost on people. Again, hype, NFTs, there's the mania around NFTs in the moment. Uh, so this is just the first wave of Atari engaging in these uh, NFT auctions as well. Apparently they have ones lined up for later where they're going to be uh, selling collectibles based on Pong as well. Uh, so uh, God help us all that there's going to be more <laughs> from this. Uh coming down the pipeline, it's all going to be really, really painfully stupid and just further show that uh, there's a new hype train that's got people all in a tizzy. It's NFTs. And we say this, and we're talking about the story. Actually, this weekend that the program, this current episode you're listening to, is released, is WrestleMania weekend, put on by the World Wrestling Entertainment Company, who they, the WWE, have also started selling NFTs as well. I believe theirs is just more of a straight-up uh, copying of the NBA Top Shot craze, but instead of selling highlights of LeBron James or whatever, they're selling uh, clips and highlights of The Undertaker throughout <laughs> his career. Well, got to got to cash in as much on him now that he's uh, just recently retired, right? Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So when Atari or the shell of Atari and WWE are getting in on the NFT game. Uh, that kind of feels to me like when your parents are coming around to something and figuring out like, oh, that's a cool thing. I should be involved with it. Well, what this is, is basically like, yeah, exactly what you're saying. But it's kind of like, this is what's caused, if, if there wasn't a bubble, if this was just sort of like a lucky thing, like it seems with, with cryptocurrency over the last while, there have been a couple of bubble type moments, but generally it seems like people have kind of been slowly but surely driving adoption of it. You know, whether or not that's good or bad, that's, you know, neither here nor there. We're not passing judgment on that. But it was still like, you know, there was – it took some time to get people on board, you know, before, you know, we started seeing these crazy numbers pop up because like for a while – like cryptocurrency, like if we think of Bitcoin, like it was up and down around 200 for like a good couple of years, even when it was in the news cycle. And then over the next several years after that, then it, it was the, it got its steady and meteoric rise to the crazy heights that it's currently at, at like, you know, 40 plus thousand dollars per coin. This seems like it happened really fast and companies really trying to make so much crazy money so fast with this to me is basically going to, it's just going to accelerate any sort of like people losing interest in it. Right. Very, very quickly because it's just, people are going to look at this and go, wait, what the hell did I spend? Like, hopefully there's going to be some amount of sobering thought with a lot of people who look at this and go, wait a minute, I just spent $180 on a picture of a centipede cartridge. I mean, it's been verified as authentic from the source in quotation marks, but I don't really know what that means. And what does that really mean functionally? Like, who cares? 
yeah, you've got uh, you've got a piece of art, if you will, that you can only display on a digital device, and it's of a cartridge. When for less money, you could buy the real cartridge and put it up on your wall if you wanted something to display. Yeah, but even all of that aside, like, but yeah, that's that's I think the biggest point. It's like you could get the real thing, or you could just basically. What's the point of the authenticity of a digital file in this context? Like, isn't that sort of like, maybe it's because, you know, I was around during, you know, the Napster revolution of like the early 2000s that it seems like this runs totally counter to the idea of, you know, the file sharing culture of the internet that's built up over the last 20 years, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. Like I, I understand from, the struggling artist standpoint, it'd be really good to be able to actually verify like, Hey, this is like, if I made some commission piece of art for someone, the one that you're looking at is actually the legitimate file. Like if someone wants to distribute it or whatever, like at least I'm getting credit for it and whatever else. And then like, if you know, my watermark was cropped off of it, maybe there's can be eventually some way of flagging to be like, Hey, this is actually not a legit version of a file. It's missing all of this NFT information or blockchain information to verify its source. What the hell? Like I get that, but I also don't understand what the point of just a picture of something that you, you know, you you don't even own the real thing though at this point. Like it's not, it's not a piece of art. It's a picture of a physical object. And the physical objects you can still buy for cheaper. You can. And as we're talking here, uh, what this reminds me of is what we have chastised and, and maligned in the past of Star Citizen and people shelling out thousands of dollars for ships in Star Citizen. Yeah. It, it makes no sense to us then to shell out a lot of money for something that is just a digital asset that you can look at. And now people are just finding another avenue to do that. Yeah. I actually saw a pretty funny, um, you know, webcomic going around the internet by, um, there was this artist who used to draw for Buzzfeed. His name is Adam Ellis. Um, anyway, cartoonist, you know, he did a lot of funny stuff and, you know, he, he has his own Facebook page and stuff and he, he did his own take on this NFT thing as an artist himself. It was basically like, the joking thing of like him handing a picture to someone being like, great, thanks for purchasing this NFT off me for $18,000 or whatever. And then the other person going, awesome. Now I'm the owner of this thing. And then him basically having a exact copy of the picture that he just sold, but he drew mustaches on the people. It's like, Oh, would you like to also buy this one? And the guy's like, uh, this, that's just the same picture I just bought. He's like, yeah, but there's mustaches on it. And what, I, what this is, is another piece just basically, pointing out, you know, the uh, the frivolity of digital media and blah, blah, blah. And then the other guy was just like, this seems like a bit of a scam. And then Adam Ellis's like, you know, little comic avatar, his eyes narrowed and he had like this tricky smile. And it was just like, the, the word bubble was like, it does seem like a scam, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, <laughs> so that's sort of like what my opinion of this has been kind of like molded by a little bit. And I can't help but think this is a bit of a scam. It feels like a scam. It feels like a scam that's come on pretty quick. And I wonder how much of a factor that $60 million painting auction has played in the the rush to adoption and rush of people uh, releasing NFTs, involving themselves in NFTs. Uh, I mean, 
that was a lot of money pretty early on in the the popularity, the mainstream recognition of NFTs. Yeah, but also because, you know, there's that part of, you know, of you know, growing up watching crime shows and stuff, like I'm sure you probably think about this as well. Anytime you see a large amount of money like that being kind of filtered through something like this, I can't help but think what level, like what type of laundering is happening right now? Like this clearly screams money laundering to me, right? I can, uh, I can see that. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's a lot of money changing hands quickly, uh, in these uh, transactions. I mean, the, the, with the rush of people getting into NFTs that, uh, yeah, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some level of sketchiness going on, but then again, it's all involving cryptocurrency, which is just another layer that makes it seem hard to understand and sketchy and, and whatnot. Yeah. So NFTs are here and you know they've become uh, a new layer and new level of popular when the shell of Atari is trying to cash in on them, when other groups like the WWE are trying to cash in on them and get their piece of the uh, NFT pie. God help us all. Yeah. How long before we start offering this uh, this podcast as an NFT? <laughs> I'd be lying if I didn't think about that. <laughs> if I if I said I didn't think about that, yes. Yes. So. How much money could we actually get for that? <laughs> no idea. Probably not a lot, but hey, the price tag of two hundred thousand dollars per episode is out there, so <laughs> Uh uh We can be bought. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll make whatever, we'll make whatever custom episodes you want. We'll talk about whatever you want if you pay us enough money. <laughs> it's true. Uh, if you want details on that, of course, you can always email us for, uh, for more information, info at thearcadeshow.com. But yes. hey, speaking of a lot of money and how to get it quickly, if you have a valuable asset, something perhaps more valuable, tangibly real, uh, and tangibly valuable, and objectively valuable, more so than, say, digital assets that the Shell of Atari is pumping out, uh, you can put it up for auction and let people fight over it and just jack up the price and walk away with a whole crapload of money. Yeah, and one of the most popular ways currently of doing that other than NFTs or other buzz terms or anything like that are Pokemon cards. You and I have talked about the rise in popularity and the ridiculous purchase prices for some Pokemon cards over the last several weeks on this program. It really feels like it's been one of those recurring uh, themes or recurring trends we've seen throughout the course of this new year of 2021. Yeah. Yeah, like there's been multiple, multiple cases of people talking about these, you know, Pokemon cards selling for in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yeah, we have another one of those cases right now. So back at the end of March, an auction on eBay closed for a super rare Charizard card. Now we, we've covered, uh, you know, rare Charizard cards selling for a lot of money here on this program. I think, uh, February or March was the last one that sold for, uh, uh, sold for six figures. Uh, though how much six figures is, uh, I'm blanking on at this moment, but still it was six figures for a Charizard card. That's a, that's a good day at the office. That's a lot of money. So at the end of March was an auction on eBay for another very rare Charizard card. And over, you know, it's, it's list price. It's starting bid was $9.99. Fine. Over the course of the next 124 bids, up until it's closing at, 
I guess, end of time on uh, on a day at the end of March, the final price for this auction of a rare Charizard card on eBay was 311,800 US dollars. <laughs> That's a lot of money. That's a stupid amount of money. That's a stupid amount yeah. of money that, in theory, one person or one entity, perhaps comprised of multiple people, perhaps three small children stacked on top of each other wearing a trench coat, that was spent on a Charizard card. $311,800. Yeah. Now, granted, this isn't the most a card has ever sold for or anything like that, because, you know, some people have noted, like... um well, particularly Ian Walker from Kotaku.com has noted that this actually does seem like a little bit low in comparison to other previous auctions of the same card because back in December of 2020, similarly graded cards sold for $350,100 and $369,000. So, yeah. What becomes very apparent with this, though, is... If you have a Pokemon card collection that's in very good shape, have a look. Just go have a look right now. See if you have a Charizard. See if it is, you know, the holographic foil Charizard. And then go maybe get it graded. And then based on the grading, maybe you might want to put it up for auction. That, that's, that's all I'm saying. That's a key point you make there because simply having the card and establishing it's a, of a certain rarity is one thing. But no one's going to pay stupid amounts of money, as they did in this case, unless it's been graded professionally. Yeah. And that's one of the contributing factors to why this particular Charizard card went for as much as it did. Yes, less than some other similar Charizard cards, but still, $311,000. The person selling this did not pay anywhere near that much for this particular Charizard card. So they had a stupid profit on it. But hey, if the mint version of this card is going for $300,000, chances are some pretty good condition versions of this card is probably going to go for several thousand dollars at least. True. That's a good point. And uh, this was a, uh, yeah, this was a mint card, as you mentioned there, a card that was professionally rated as, uh, in its condition, as being uh, a 10 gem mint Card, so it's virtually perfect in every way, according to the professional sport, uh, the professional sports authenticator uh, service that makes their living grading and evaluating trading cards for value uh, and to see if uh, and judge what their value is. But the other factor that uh, made this uh, such a uh, an expensive card is that it's from the first edition printing of Pokemon cards. And that was established by a really small, minute detail. And so if you want to uh, find out if you have a rare first edition Pokemon card in your collection, the trick is to look at the middle panel where your Pokemon is, Pokemon is actually depicted. And in that middle where the Pokemon is depicted, there's a frame, a border around the, uh, the picture of your Pokemon. Does that frame have a drop shadow on it? Because if it does, that means it's come after the first pressing, first printing of the cards. If it does not have a drop shadow on that frame in the middle where your Pokemon is depicted, you, your, you friend, have a first edition printing of some kind of Pokemon card. That is what's going to help get you a lot of money. Yeah. Quite. 
So this is a lot of money. It's not the most money we've talked about for Pokemon cards. Uh, that came a couple weeks ago, back when there was the super rare test printing card of a Blastoise Pokemon card that sold at auction for $360,000, where it was just the, uh, the Pokemon card and the, uh, the detailed information on the one side, and then the back side of it was blank. There wasn't the actual Pokemon card uh, logo backing to it. So still, again, Blastoise uh, cards undefeated in the face of uh, challenges uh, brought their way by Charizard cards. Blastoise, the superior Pokemon card. <laughs> I mean, fire always puts out wa- or water always puts out fire, I should say. So makes sense. So uh, even so, $311,800, that is a good day at the office. That is a ridiculous amount of scratch for one card. They might think like, oh, Pokemon cards are everywhere. How could they be so rare? As we touched on, two two contributing factors right there. The condition of the card, it's pretty much perfect in every way, or virtually perfect, and it's a first edition pressing of the card. Very important factors. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like just kind of further to that, it's not just that they're perfect condition and they're, you know, super rare. It's also been verified by someone as well. So like you might have a perfect edition card, but it's not going to be worth anything if you just toss it up on eBay unless you actually take it to, to get graded by one of these authorities. Absolutely. So, uh, bear that in mind if you're, thinking you want to dig through your collection, maybe your parents or whatever still have your uh, first Pokemon cards from back in the day. Again, you need it graded at the end of the day. Uh, otherwise, no one's going to pay a stupid amount of money for it. But $311,800, that's a good day at the office. But that's not the best day at the office we're going to talk about here in the Ludicrous Leadoffs because that amount uh, was doubled by another recent auction. Yeah, another recent auction. Um one of the games that often goes for a high amount of money is, well, when the original Super Mario Brothers cartridge for the Nintendo Entertainment System uh, is come across in a complete inbox sealed version, which doesn't happen very often. It's very, very rare at this point. I mean, it's one of the most common games in the world, but, you know, because it came basically packed in with most Nintendos or, in, it, well... A version of the game did anyways, but uh, this is the version that doesn't have Duck Hunt as well on it, I'm talking about. This is like the standalone Super Mario Brothers cartridge. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a common game that everyone's played before, uh, there's not a lot of, you know, sealed copies out there anymore. It is like a 30-plus-year-old game, 35 years old, I should say, sorry. Um, and yeah, things that are 35 years old... Even when they're in sealed condition, like, you know, they're not going to stay super mint necessarily. Like, the ravages of time do things to things. So, when something, when you do come across a game, like, if you are lucky enough to kind of come across a copy of this game, and you do notice it's sealed, you should actually go get it graded, because of what we're going to tell you. So there was an auction recently, uh, done and conducted by Heritage, Heritage Auctions. They are a group, uh, based out of, I believe, Dallas, Texas. If not Dallas, somewhere in the state of Texas. And they deal in auctioning very valuable, rare, collectible items. And they've got a penchant for dealing in these video game auctions. We've spoken, I think, uh, in the past 
year or two of a number of auctions they've conducted of rare games or rare editions of games selling for stupid amounts of money. I think we have the stupidest amount of money we've ever talked about here now because they conducted an auction for a super rare steel sealed copy of Super Mario Brothers for the NES that sold for 660,000 US dollars. Yeah. I will repeat that. $660,000 paid at auction for a still sealed copy of Super Mario Brothers from the NES. And before you getting all your wrinkles up there, if you're listening and thinking, well, why, you know, what the hell? That's a super stupid amount of money. Why would anyone pay that for a game that basically everyone had back in the day and you can still find pretty easily? Why would anyone pay that? You know, uh, it's... It's such a common game. It's really not worth that much. Oh, well, maybe I'll just turn around and like sell my copy and make a lot of money. No, no, no. Gear down. Calm down. Come down off your angry ledge. There's this is a still sealed copy that has a couple things going for it. One, the grading. It's been professionally graded and professionally graded, as we'll touch on in a minute, at a very high rating. But two, it still has a hang tab. So, which means if you look at the back of the box, it's got a plastic hanger that was put on the back of it so that it could, it could hang off a rod from a shelf at a retail store. And three is people are able to discern by what is on the box and what is not written on the box that this is actually one of the earliest steel sealed copies of Super Mario Brothers in circulation. Or if not, they've ever come across. Yeah. So there's about three different factors that are all contributing to this particular copy of Mario Brothers for NES going for $660,000, which, Jesus H. Christ, that's an unfathomable amount of money to get from an auction of one video game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, it's also, you know, it's got a nice little story attached to it as well, which... It's also a little, well, it's a little bit of an unbelievable story, but you know, weirder things happen. Uh, we, we heard before when this happened, like there was another story. It reminds me of before I just tell the brief story of this card or card, I should say was like another story we heard was it was a, I think it's a, a recurring type story of like how this could happen of like, you know, parents buy children game for Christmas, misplace it forget where it is, maybe have a panic, probably have to go buy another copy. Then, you know, 30 plus years later when they're cleaning out the attic or the garage or whatever, they come across it and then go, oh, huh, there it is. And that's what happened with this as well. We, I mean, we, we heard it about that family where they found it in the attic when they were literally moving their parents out of the house or whatever it was. Like, what was that, last year? Yeah, last year. And it was uh, a game that was meant to be given to a brother and a sister at Christmas time that the parents and uh, that was bought by the parents. And so it was sold at auction. And I believe the brother and sister split the money and they were going to take their respective families on a trip to Disney World. Yeah. Whereas this one, similar story. Um it was just the seller of the sealed copy who wanted to be anonymous said that this game was originally purposed, purchased as a Christmas gift back in 1985, but I guess it was forgotten about in a desk drawer and then it was left untouched for 35 years. And yeah, I mean, a little bit unbelievable to me because it's like who leaves stuff untouched in a desk drawer? Like 
it's a desk drawer. Like, are you not sitting at that desk? Like, if you put it in that drawer, that implies that you would have been probably sitting at the desk at some point, right? And like, if you're at your desk, like, you probably have stuff in there that like you want to access in the drawer. Like, maybe I'm just a crazy person by myself of just like, well, if I have a drawer, I'm going to be going through it pretty semi-regularly, right? Uh, I, this isn't as unfathomable to me as perhaps it is to you. I, if it got buried under papers or something else or a drawer that wasn't as frequently accessed as some other drawers, this, this strikes me as plausible. I'll say that. Okay. That's fair. So, That's uh, fair. I mean, and if it's say, uh, maybe it was still in the house of the, the, maybe the parent who purchased this. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. It's not impossible, uh, implausible to me, but so there's the, there's the age factor contributing to the, uh, ridiculous auction price here. There's the, and as we mentioned before, and we're going to touch on again and reinforce to you people out there with these auctions, grading is important. In this case, Heritage Auctions says that, uh, this particular sealed cartridge was, quote, the finest copy known to have been professionally graded for auction, earning a rating of 9.6 A plus from the WATA uh, authentication and grading organization. 9.6 A plus. 10 is the tops of the scale. This is as close, pretty much as close uh, as you can get to that. Yeah. Now, Especially it, considering the age of the thing, considering, you know, all of these different factors, like 35 years old, you know, time will just do some oxidization to things and whatnot, and just it's just a natural thing that happens. This is – so you'll never see a 10 is basically what the thing is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't – well, something like a cartridge, which is bigger and – or, or the box of, of a cartridge, which is bigger and perhaps more prone to being crushed or whatnot. I don't know how you could keep it, uh, in pristine 10 like condition through 35 years. Yeah. You, you basically have to buy it at the time, put it in a box wrapped in bubble wrap with, you know, foam peanuts around it and then seal that box in another box with foam peanuts and bubble wrap. So it's never oxidized, never crushed or, you know, greatly reduced with pressure and whatnot and just put it away on a top shelf so it's never worried about. Or perhaps in a basement too, so you don't have to worry about moisture. So there's there's a lot that has to go right for something like something this old to still be in such pristine condition. Uh but I've read too one of the factors that contributed is the rarity. As I mentioned, the hang tab on the back is an indication of kind of when a an NES game was released, because not all NES uh boxes had those, or boxes for NES games, had those plastic hang tabs on the back. They're from the earlier years of the NES and NES games being available on the market. But what I read, too, is some people figured out the rarity of this being in one of the earliest pressings uh, or printings of Mario Brothers for the NES is that it lacked some of the uh, coding or specific uh, game code, or not game coding, but uh, sales coding or whatever, barcodes, on the front of the box. And those came huh. later on in printings of games. Uh, earlier ones did not have those. So that is a contributing factor. So it's a kind of a, a three-point process that uh, really had to happen for this game to achieve the ridiculous sale price of $660,000. And there's a quote in the press release that was put out by Heritage Auctions, a quote attributed to their video games director, Valerie McLecky, 
who says, quote, as soon as this copy of Super Mario Brothers arrived at, at Heritage, we knew the market would find it just as sensational as we did, end quote. So there you go. So $660,000 for this very specific copy of Mario Brothers for the NES. And I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb, but I don't feel like it's that much of a limb where we see this particular car, perhaps this particular copy, this particular box, you know, the game from this auction, maybe get turned around in like maybe say five, seven years and sell for a million dollars. Yeah, I don't think that that would be unreasonable. Which, on the surface, the concept of it, of paying a million dollars for an old NES game, seems ridiculous. But? I mean, (laughs) given the way the prices have been going, I mean, it makes sense that it would happen. And not only that, too, as we've uh, touched on in uh, previous talkings of these uh, ridiculous items, uh, be it Pokemon cards, other cards, other games going at... uh, very uh, healthy prices uh, in previous auctions and through Heritage or eBay or some other organization that uh, there's an influx of money coming into the video game collecting community uh, and it's coming from people who made their money, be it in the art world, be it in the comic book collecting or some other avenue and prices maybe in those fields are a bit too crazy to justify the purchase prices whereas video game collecting is still a relatively young market and so things are cheaper and prices, higher prices will be paid because they're still cheap compared to what you might might buy for a valuable piece of art or something. Yeah. So again, if you are looking at your game collection or your card collection, Pokemon, Magic, whatever, uh, and you're thinking, hey, maybe I've got, uh, I should see if I've got some valuable stuff going on here. Again, we we cannot emphasize this point enough. You have to have it professionally graded. Yeah. And then if anything else, that'll just basically give you the baseline for, you know, Help, to help set your expectations because you might think, oh, I've got a gold foil Charizard card and I think it's a first edition. If it's in garbage condition, you're not going to get – like if it's professionally graded and they look at it and go, oh, no, this is like a 4 out of 10. Like this is you know not super great. It might still be worth something but like it will help temper your expectations of like, oh, maybe this isn't a $300,000 card that I thought it might be. Maybe it's only going to be like a $20,000 card or maybe a whatever you know, so. And it's very easy uh, to build up your expectations too. If you maybe find something that is of a, of a higher value in your collection, well, you're naturally going to turn to the internet to start doing a bit of research on your own and you'll start to see some prices that uh, maybe raise your eyebrows, maybe get you excited, uh, uh, harden your nipples or whatever the case might be. Yes. Uh, and then you need a professional grading because no one's going to pay high prices for just a, you know, a card loose on its own that you has no backing or authentication to it. So uh, do that and then go forward. Maybe you actually do have something valuable. Maybe you'll use this as an opportunity to double check your collection. Uh, and maybe you've, uh, you're going to look at some of your valuable stuff in a new, in a new eye. If you do go this road again, get it authenticated, get it graded. Uh, but let us know your stories. Do you have any success? Uh, you can always email us info at the arcade show.com or let us know through social media. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter at the arcade show. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, and also if you, uh, do sell something for a lot of money, we'll take 10% of that action for, uh, putting that bug in your ear. So, uh. Yeah. Just a, just a little bit off the top, just for us. Yeah. Know. I mean, you can, old, you can spare old it, right? Mike and Dennis, just, you know, old, old Mike and Dennis need to do a pair of shoes, so we can, uh. <laughs> I mean, you laugh and it's a, it's a hackneyed phrase, but literally I have a pair of runners that have about three holes in the uh, ends of each, each shoe, each left and right shoe. So. But they're really worn in and really comfy, and I don't want to get rid of them. So, yeah. So what what we really need is uh, to get you to a uh, the uh, the cobbler then, just to fix the shoes. Yes, yes. I would not be opposed to a uh, a new cobbling of my shoes uh, to maintain their comfort, but fix the uh, surface and, ex- and exterior so moisture does not get through and give me a uh, give me a soggy sock inside, which is. Something that's happened. <laughs> Perfect. But uh, moving right along, speaking of monies, as we continue on the money-based video game discussion this week, Sony apparently deciding that uh, they just uh, uh, they've done a they've done a cost-benefit analysis and decided that you know what, there just isn't the profit there anymore to justify the continued use and continued maintenance of the digital storefronts for the PS3, PSP, and PlayStation Vita. And so they have recently announced that those three digital storefronts are all going to be closing through the course of this summer. So if you have a PS3 or PSP and we're still buying games, you'll have until July 2nd. And if you have a PS Vita and we're still using that, you'll have until August 27th to purchase games, after which point that particular digital storefront goes bye-bye. Yeah, so of course, like, don't, don't let too much panic set in if you weren't planning on buying new games, but were maybe hoping that you'd still be able to turn on your PlayStation 3 or whatever and still download old games. You'll still be able to download all your old games. Those will all still be available, but it's, you just won't be able to go in and purchase new ones. That's the implication of this. Correct. So again, July 2nd for the PS3 and PlayStation Portable and August 27th for the PlayStation Vita. So, uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, I mean, I guess somewhat sad that they're closing down the storefronts, but at the same time, impressive that they've still been up all this time. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not super sad. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of puzzling that it was still open, in my opinion. Because, I mean, for a company that actually seems like they don't really care at all about backwards compatibility, like it's it's very strange to me that the PlayStation Five, even though you know, good luck getting one. It's it's been out for several months now, and the PlayStation Five has its own storefront. The PlayStation Four storefront is still going. Like it's crazy to me that they would have the PlayStation Three storefront also still available. That's three separate storefronts to have to maintain. And perhaps a desire to streamline their uh, storefront operations was a, or digital storefront operations was a motivating factor. At the same time, uh, the PS3, PSP, and PS Vitas are systems that are very long in the tooth. Yeah, absolutely. Like the PlayStation 3, I think is what, close to, it's probably close, like at least 10 plus years old at this point. Uh, it is, uh, 15? Uh, yeah, I think we're getting closer to it. Uh, the original, uh, release date for the PlayStation 3 in North America was November 17th, 2006. Okay, so, so we're, 
we're almost we're like we're fourteen and change. Yeah, fourteen, fourteen, almost fourteen and a half years uh, old is the PlayStation Three. So that's an impressive amount of time to maintain the digital storefront, considering that that's a long time. And then the PS4 came out a couple of years after, in what 2010? 2011? Yeah, that sounds sounds right. If if not uh, a bit after that, as I'm quickly pulling it up. Oh, I'm surprised. 2013. Okay, so five years later. Yeah. Well, seven. Yeah, yeah, seven. Seven years after the PS3 was the PS4, so, uh, yeah. Now, by contrast, uh, Microsoft still is maintaining a digital storefront for the Xbox 360 and still has games on sale for it every week. <laughs> well, they, they also know where their priorities are. Like, they actually seem to care more about their backwards compatibility and all that stuff, so, as well, so, I don't know. It's uh, it's a different time, but uh, again, ample time uh, between now and then. If you're still using a PS Vita, you've got until August 27th. If you have to write that down, mark it on a calendar, put it in your phone, do that now. And likewise, on the flip side, uh, PS3 and PlayStation Portable, those digital stores again closing on July 2nd. But uh, things coming and going from digital storefronts is uh, not an entirely new concept, uh, I believe, uh, a week or two ago, with the end of March, came the end and discontinuation of Super Mario 35, the uh, Nintendo original Mario-centric uh, Battle Royale game, which unfortunately bit the dust, but here we are. Nintendo did at least say from the outset it was available only for a limited time, was going away at the end of March, whatever. But uh, I, guess to, I guess as an attempt at a make-good, they announced this week that there's a new Battle Royale game coming to the Switch Online service. And it's one, I don't know, I don't know, if I could just rant for briefly, not even really rant, it's just, you know, voice my opinion here for a second. Soapbox is yours. Super Mario 35 was great. It was basically the only, I mean, I played Tetris 99, I thought it was okay. I, you know, tried a couple of these other Battle Royale type games, and most of them were like, eh. But Super Mario 35, it, it just clicked for me. Mind you, it was, you know, as someone that, you know, got pretty good at the original Super Mario Brothers back in the day. It was just sort of like a kind of refreshing, like, oh, this is an interesting take on the game, and I really enjoyed it. So it kind of bothers me that they they took it away. Maybe they'll bring it back under a different name. Like, I can understand if they don't want to keep calling it Super Mario 35, because, yeah, that's a little bit strange, like... As you get one year later, it doesn't make any sense to call it 35 anymore because now you're, it's 36th anniversary. Fine. I get it, but still, um, I'm just going to say, I know we haven't said what the next game is, that they're using the make good for. I'm just going to say I'm not as big a fan as the game that they're replacing. Like, I haven't played this replacement yet, but I'm not as big a fan of the source game as I am Super Mario Brothers. So that's now I'm stepping off of the soapbox. All right, fair enough. Uh, you're back on uh, level-headed ground, and I appreciate that. And we'll now take this opportunity, as you've passed the talking stick back to me, that uh, I will tell the listeners what this new battle royale game is coming to Switch Online, and it's Pac-Man '99. It's a Pac-Man-centric battle royale game. Yeah. So as the '99 implies, there's 99 players all. St- 
playing it around at the same time, and you have to try and be the last pack person standing. Or you could say last Pac-Man standing because that's the, that's the character's name. So you might be wondering how exactly is this going to work in light of the fact that Pac-Man traditionally is a solo experience or if there's been multiplayer, it's been different people all playing Pac-Man on the same puzzle board at the same time. This, of course, is not going to be that. You're not going to have 99 Pac people all on the same board at the same time. That would be utter anarchy. Yeah. So instead, what's going to happen is that uh, the mechanic by which you'll be able to, uh, I guess, play through the the Pac-Man experience is that uh, you'll be able to chop down, chomp down, and eat ghosts. But uh, and when you do, you'll send them to enemies uh, or other opposing players uh, in a in an order and manner you've determined by using your controls on the left Joy-Con. But there's also going to be rows of what are called sleeping ghosts attached to one of your ghosties on the puzzle board. If you hit a power pellet and then go through and chomp down on all these, on this line of sleeping ghosts, and then the uh, attached ghostie itself, you're sending a whole crapload more ghosts to other opposing players as opposed to one at a time in this rinky-dink, you know, pick-and-peck fashion. You can send a whole stream of them to all at once, to one player, to whoever you want, and really load up their puzzle board with ghosts and making it more likely that they crap out. So this game is going to be made available to subscribers of the Switch Online service at no cost, However, there's additional paid DLC, such as if you want to play just a single-player mode or unlock, like, a versus mode or some sort of time attack, you'll have to pay for those specific modes. But the Battle Royale version itself, free with your Switch Online subscription, I believe it is available now. And when I saw the trailer for this, my first thought was, good God, Pac-Man can be a hard game at times already. Why are you making it harder? Well, I think that's that's generally just the crux of all of these Battle Royale games. I mean, the Super Mario 35 got out of control with some of the levels, you know, with the way that they were, um, you know, with extra enemies and sometimes even, like, Bowser's just arbitrarily tossed in the middle of levels and Lakitu's making things going way out of hand, like... And, yeah, same thing with, like, Tetris 99, people giving you extra pieces and making things go faster and... Stuff like that. So, yeah. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's not like, it's not like there's like infinite space for your pack person to move around in and <laughs> like you might just get to a certain point when you're just kind of screwed, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Where, uh, I mean, you're going, it's easy to get boxed into a corner already in normal Pac-Man with, by the ghosties. But, uh, now imagine that where you don't even have a corner to get boxed into just, you're in the middle of the puzzle board and you're boxed in already by ghosts on every side. Yeah. So, uh, if you are a specific Pac-Man fan and think, uh, you're going to be able to uh, kick some ass at this, all right, more power to you. But uh, I know this one is go- a battle royale game I'm going to be avoiding. I I'm not particularly good at regular Pac-Man, so yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like I'm not. I don't know if I'm good or bad at Pac-Man. All I know is that I'm not a huge fan of Pac-Man. It's yeah. just, just game wise, it's not super interesting to me. 
No, I can see that. So uh, uh, this is the next Battle Royale game Nintendo is offering up. As we said, we're t- we are terming it a make good for the uh, deletion and removal of Super Mario 35. Nothing can really recapture Super Mario 35. That was a fantastic experience. Yeah, it was great. It And even like, you know, a little bit of like a community built up around it on the internet of like, you know, speedrunners who really saw it as like a new, almost like an extension of like, you know, the, the speedrunning itself to make it, to add new and interesting challenges to this game that they're already super aware of and like basically dynamic challenges because you'll never get the same level of challenge, you know, from time to time. Like the levels are the same, but the levels become a framework for what kind of crazy nonsense can get thrown your way. And it, it still is, uh, or Super Mario 35 was still based in core you know, original mechanics, but then it just took it in a completely different direction. Whereas I don't see much of a difference between original Pac-Man and what's happening with Pac-Man 99 beyond you send ghosties to other players. Well, that's sort of like the, it's sort of like the, um, my big issue with like Pac-Man in general, Mario, you get more 2d freedom, like, you know, along like the X and Y axis, like as a character, like, just because someone has sent 200 enemies your way, there's a little bit of strategy you can use when you're like, okay, I'm going to jump as far as I can onto that shell over there. And then hopefully they'll knock all the enemies away to the right. Or maybe I'll try to use this pow block and knock some of these enemies away. Or maybe I'll try to jump up onto that block up there and narrowly miss, you know, these five bullet bills coming my way or something like that. Whereas Pac-Man, you're in like a corridor. It's a narrow corridor. And if enemies end up on your left and right, there's actually no escape and that's it. It's true. And that's like true of the main game as well. Like, like, yeah, there is a level of strategy of like, okay, well I don't want to duck into this part of the corridor here because there's no escape and it's a dead end. So instead I'm going to duck down this way, which should, you know, make me loop around to the top of the screen and things like that. Fine. But at its core, you're still in a hallway at all times and you're restricted by the hallway. You're not, like there's no, there's no like reprieve from that hallway. Like you're, you're like, no matter where you go, like if there's an enemy on either side of you, that's it. It's game over. Yeah. You're moving around a floor plan. Yeah, exactly. Whereas with Mario, there's like, it's not a hundred percent game over. Like even if, like even if something happens, like if you lose your power up, there's a couple of seconds of invincibility where, you know, you can maybe like run to a slightly safer vantage point to reassess or, you know, get another power up or, you know, try to, you know, do something about the current situation or like things like that because there's multiple places you can go and like multiple approaches you can take. There's not really multiple places or approaches in a single hallway like that's as wide as your character. Like you can't go up and down if there is no up and down. No, that's uh that's an accurate assessment. And as we're sitting here talking about this game, I wonder if perhaps a uh more accurate approximation of the experience of Super Mario 35 that maybe uh could have been offered if the deals were worked out, but a, a game that would have worked as a more suitable replacement for Super Mario 35 instead of this Pac-Man game is something like do a Sonic 99 Battle Royale game. Or rebrand it Super Mario 99 because it was 35 because that's, you know, it was the, the double, 
the double whammy of the name of like, okay, it's the 35 year anniversary, but there's also you and 34 other players bringing the total number of players up to 35. If you make it 99, now you've also ramped up the difficulty a little bit and now it's actually a lot crazier and it's a much bigger challenge for everyone, which could be good and bad, but given the way that the community was going, I think it would have probably been good, but yeah, I don't see any reason to just kind of pull the game back. I mean, yeah, it was a free game and, you know, maybe it's no one wants to be maintaining infrastructure forever and stuff. But if you make it a core part, like maybe just raise the Nintendo online membership price a little bit, maybe make it give it, you know, different tiers, maybe make it a game that you have to purchase and pay for. I'd probably pay a couple bucks a month to play the game if I wanted it. Like, I don't know, but. Anyway, it, it does seem strange to me that they would take these games away and then period. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm all for like, if they want to add a, you know, Pac-Man 99 as well. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, there's no value in Pac-Man 99. I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy it a lot and that's fine. It's just, it's strange to me to basically just make a super fun experience such a limited time thing for basically no real reason other than just the whole aspect of exclusivity for the sake of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, these are factors we knew going into the release of super Mario 35, as well as the uh, Mario anniversary collection for switch, which had uh, the three games on it. That was stated as a timed release as well uh, to be going away from digital and physical storefronts at the end of March. So these are, this isn't new information, uh, but we're still kind of here uh, with those games now having got, you know, come and gone realizing that things shouldn't be time limited. Yeah, they really shouldn't be. I mean, it's tricky though, because I, I do understand the, the limited time version of a physical release of a thing. But having said that, you already also have a online store framework. So maybe just making the physical release a limited edition thing, like that does make sense. Fine. I get it. But you like, why do you need to actually totally limit accessing the entire game? Like, why can't you just still keep it available in, you know, your online storefront at least? Like, it's just a little bit of extra storage space. Like, it's not like, it's not like that extra 40 gigs or whatever that that game requires on your storage space is breaking the bank for you. I would imagine like, it's not that alone is not, you know, upping your hosting costs. <laughs> by like factors of a, you know, like, like, like a factor of one at least or factor of 10 at least like the, like, I don't get it. These are decisions made by, uh, 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 you know, price points and, uh, uh, salary levels far above you and I. Yeah. Far, far above you and I, but, uh, nevertheless, Pac-Man 99 still, uh, I guess, the next Battle Royale game to try and replace Super Mario 35 in the, uh, in the hearts and switches of, uh, Nintendo Switch owners everywhere. But, uh, speaking of Nintendo and different forms that they are branching their content out to, uh, beyond just consoles and, uh, their own systems, uh, they've had, uh, quite a bit of success, uh, well, not directly them, but the Pokemon company that they are one-third owners in has had uh, a lot of success and reaped a lot of rewards from the Pokemon Go uh, mobile AR game. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago on this show here about the fact that Niantic had another Nintendo product in the development pipeline 
and it was going to be a Pikmin game. And as you and I talked about here on the show, we kind of wondered, without any solid information at the time, how the hell would a Pikmin-based game work if it wasn't just being a straight-up copy of Pokemon Go? I mean, battling isn't a big mechanic in Pikmin games. It's a lot no. more exploring and solving problems with your Pikmin. So kind of, it's more Lemmings-like as a game experience. Yeah, exactly. So uh, now that the Pikmin game, the uh, AR experience put out by Niantic, is in the wild in very select parts of the world, reports now on exactly what this gameplay experience is going to be like, and it's very walking-centric, as is Pokemon Go, but this one uh, seems to uh, really want to get you outside and really get you walking and moving almost with a, a health and wellness bent to the app as well. Uh, because yeah. as you walk through with this game, presumably open on your mobile device, you generate what's called step energy and will allow you to grow Pikmin from seedlings, which you can then name them. You can feed them nectar and you can also make them bloom with uh, different colored flowers. This information being brought our way by Tom Phillips of Eurogamer.net. Again, the game is out in Singapore. People are already playtesting it. It's still in very early development. Uh, I think this might be an early beta test, if not alpha test, probably beta test, but nevertheless, so you walk around, you grow your Pikmin, and then you explore with your Pikmin, uh, and you let them... And they'll find fruit, which you can then turn into nectar, which you use to uh, breed and hatch other Pikmin. Uh, and then you also have flowered Pikmin that will leave trails of petals behind, which uh, in turn will uh, encourage more seedlings, more Pikmin seeds, to turn into sprouts and then grow from there. So the takeaway, according to Tom Phillips of Eurogamer, is that the more you walk around your local area doing whatever the more you'll be encouraging your Pikmin to grow, and then you'll also have more Pikmin to send out for expeditions to gather to gather more seedlings from other places you've already walked. So the crux of it seems to really center around just getting Pikmin and then getting more Pikmin. Yeah, <laughs> but for what purpose? Five question marks. At the very least, so uh, I assume you then raise an army? Is this part of it? They will be your soldiers slash cannon fodder to take on other bigger bosses? I don't know. Yeah? So that is that is the uh, quick Coles Note version of uh, what the Pikmin AR app experience is going to be like, at least according to what some playtesters have experienced using it, playing it in Singapore, where the game is currently available. So go from there uh, on whether or not that's an experience you'll want to partake in as uh, it eventually comes out for release in North America. It doesn't sound yeah. like there's a lot of fun mechanics to be had. No, it's literally... I mean, whereas Pokemon Go, there were, there seemed to be more interactive elements where, yeah, you have to do walking for hatching your Pokemon eggs or whatever and, like, really going to, you know, venture out in the world for you – know, to find, you know, the, the – oh, what were they called again? The um, – the gyms, I guess, or whatever they were called. Oh, yes, the, yes, the gyms. Or and the different, like, places that had uh, 
I don't remember any of this stuff. This was like going back a couple of years. I did play Pokemon Go, but it's been a couple of years since I've – actually, it's probably been close to five years since I've touched Pokemon Go, so I really don't remember a lot about it. Um, but there were interactive elements of it. And I mean, you know, like it did the, do the augmented reality thing pretty well where, you know, you would encounter Pokemon in the wild and you had to actually walk to their location to catch them and stuff like that and – there was a reason for you to go out and actually catch Pokemon and you could battle using Pokemon against other Pokemon trainers and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not clear what the interactive element of this Pikmin game is because at this point it literally just sounds like, oh, walk and grow flowers on an app. And it's just like, how is that any different than, you know, of, a, you know, some of the, like one of the customized Fitbit watch faces, basically, <laughs> you know, like I've seen a Fitbit watch face that starts off the day where it's just like basically like like a bulb of a flower. And then as you reach your fitness goals throughout the day, the flower blooms. Like that's a Fitbit watch face. Like, and arguably that's even more um, interactive than this because you know, the, the benefit is directly to you and your health. So yeah, I, it's, it's not clear what, what else is going to come out about this. I, I don't know. Like I'm sure we'll learn more, but, yeah. Yeah, there's no, it doesn't seem like there's much of a reward, uh, uh, side of things to entice you to actually go do the walking and hatch these seedlings and, and get more seedlings and, and whatnot. Because if it's just, uh, some kind of recursive loop of you get seedlings to get more seedlings, which then gets you more seedlings, which can then be used to get more seedlings, that's gonna get tiresome pretty quick. Yeah, like what's the point of all these seedlings? Like what do I get? Okay, can I trade these for anything tangible? Like, and like, what else happens? Is there weird things that now start to happen because there's so many seedlings or like, are there going to be rival factions of plant growers? Like, like I know that they did evolve Pokemon Go over time as well, where, you know, when it first started, there wasn't even like the concept of the gyms or the teams basically. Like, I think that was uh, an iteration on the game, but yeah, it seems pretty thin to me at this point. A little bit. Again, it's still in early testing in Singapore. I'd imagine it will be fleshed out uh, as time goes on. It would certainly need to be fleshed out before a North American release because I don't know how many users here on this side of the world would be interested just in walking and getting things purely for the sake of walking. I mean, we are North Americans. We like getting stuff. Call me yeah. crazy. But uh, we'll we'll bring you more information on this Pikmin AR experience as it becomes available. I believe the uh, uh, you know some details and gameplay screenshots have been embargoed uh, by uh, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements that people have to agree to to actually play the game and actually experience it in Singapore as part of this early testing. So more details on that as they eventually do release. But one last news item to get to here this week, and it. Ties in to uh, something we talked about on the top of the show again, how the shell of Atari is basically flailing and has been flailing for a number of years and will just find anything and any way to try and license their classic properties as well as get into the latest buzz acronym in the tech world. And a news uh, news item coming down just the other day on Gamasutra that Atari has apparently reorganized as a company into now two different divisions each with a specific focus, one on basically licensing and the other one on trendy tech buzz acronyms. 
So apparently, according to uh, Alyssa McAloon from Gamasutra, she wrote that uh, the company has established two new divisions or groups, uh, one of them the Atari gaming side, the other the Atari blockchain side, uh, and those are going to be the two main divisions of the business focus of the shell of Atari going forward. So the CEO, or the person who was their CEO, Frederick Chenet, has stepped down as CEO and is now going to be the head of the Atari blockchain division. And that will focus entirely on Atari's blockchain dealings and licensing. Uh, in, uh, in their place, board chairman Wade J. Rosen is going to step in as CEO. The Atari gaming division side, I use gaming in quotes there. You can't see it, but trust me, the air quotes were there. Uh, that division will aim to focus on expanding the market of retro games and will specifically see the company license its brands in games as well as in the hotel and casino business and continue to develop free-to-play mobile games and revitalize classic Atari intellectual properties with an expansion into the console and PC market. And yes, even that uh, uh, getting long in the tooth Atari VCS is contained under this Atari gaming division. Well, it's it's kind of funny. Like when I read the headline for this story, I read "Division is Diversion," <laughs> thus, thus thus furthering you know the the sketchy side of things about how you know maybe with all these different new tech acronyms and blockchain and all this stuff, maybe they're involved in some sort of sketchy money laundering stuff. So it's like, oh, these are the two new diversions from this company. <laughs> but um, yeah. At least, I mean, on the one hand, it's a good idea. Like, if it was, if they were really getting concerned with the Atari brand being kind of like associated with some of this sketchy stuff, yeah, it's a good idea to break it up into two brands, but they're still both called Atari. So, that's, uh, you're not really helping that much. Atari Gaming and Atari Blockchain. This is how much the company believes in uh, blockchain and these uh, trendy buzz acronyms. There's an entire division based around it and going even harder in that direction. Yeah, but they're both still called Atari and they're both still making the name of Atari look sketchy as hell. Yes, yes, they are. But, you know, now it's two separate arms. They have just the one uh, entity doing it. You know, now they can do it twice as fast. Yeah. Well... Good for them, I suppose. So uh, the shell of Atari continuing to flail about now with two arms still randomly flail about as opposed to just the one center arm in the middle of the chest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a horrible vision, but Atari still attempting to be a thing. Uh, we don't know why they're attempting to be a thing, but yes, attempting to be a thing. But uh, I mean, obviously Atari's glory days are long past, long since past, have not really been relevant as a company for 30 plus years. Uh, but I think this is actually a prime opportunity to talk about, uh, things from yesteryear, things gone by. And no, this is not a segue to just continue talking about Atari from their glory days. No, no, this is a segue to get into the blast from the past, the portion of the program where we always take some time to recommend some items that are celebrating milestone anniversaries, uh, or at least if not recommend, talk about them and have our say on them. Perhaps finally, perhaps for the first time, second time, third time, whatever the time. And it could be anything. It could be a video game 
movie, piece of music, uh, could be television series that is near and dear to our heart. And this week we have just one item, but we'll have some words to say about it. It is a movie that came out on April 12th of the year 1996. So it's just a, a mere 25 years old. It is a movie that was done by some beloved Canadians who were uh, coming off a high, uh, a high point in their careers in the 90s. And then they turned around and decided to do a movie. We're talking about the movie that is Kids in the Hall, Brain Candy. Yeah, so it might be, you know, new information to new listeners of this program. But, you know, I feel that over the years, we've made it very known that, you know, both Mike the Legend and myself are big fans of the Kids in the Hall. We have been probably as long as we've been aware of, like, what comedy we like as people, I think. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of like, they're kind of like a ubiquitous, uh, presence in Canada. You know, they're, it's like, it's the kids in the hall. They're like, you know, they were on, you know, they were always on TV, like our whole lives growing up really. So, you know, like it was very easy to see kids in the hall reruns almost at any time whenever you wanted for like right up until even in the early two thousands, really. So at least in Canada, kids in the hall, very popular. And uh yeah, which is why what I'm going to say is very interesting and kind of maybe will come as a shock. I've never seen this movie. And I think you said like we were talking to the, about this before we recorded, you were saying that you did see it, but Basically don't remember seeing it. Uh, correct. I did see it. Uh, I didn't see it in theater, but I do recall seeing it, uh, on a, on one occasion when my sister rented it from a video rental store. Again, nineties, those things existed and watching it with her and, uh, it not really being memorable enough for me to remember watching it. Now that being said, at the time I was watching it, my sensibilities and my tastes and interest in comedy and humor had not developed yet. Yeah. So when this came out, like we were 12, really. Yeah. So I'm sure if I was to watch it now with fresh, you know, much older eyes, uh, with an established sense of what I do and don't like in comedy, uh, it would be a different viewing experience, but, uh, nothing from that one time I saw it, renting it from the video or it being rented from the video store stuck, stuck with me. Uh, and the general sense I have is sure. There was a lot of buildup, a lot of hype, a lot of interest at the time in this movie coming out, considering it was a kids in movie done by the kids in the hall who had just a, a strong cult like following, uh, given the multi-year run of their television program on CBC here in Canada, elsewhere on different networks. But there was a, a strong devoted following behind the kids in the hall, and there was a lot of excitement uh, and a lot of people looking forward to this. And I don't believe, if my re- uh, recollection is correct, that the movie delivered on perhaps what people were expecting. Now, that could be in no small part because this movie is uh, has a narrative storyline, a continuous uh, storyline that runs throughout the course of this movie experience, whereas the kids in the hall TV show was sketch comedy. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a very interesting and good point because I think that also could play into why, um, the limited edition or not limited edition, but like limited series that the kids in the hall made in the early 2000s as well when they had a little bit of a, 
a reunion on television. I think it was like, what was it? A six episode series called death comes to town. Yeah. It, it also did not deliver on what people were expecting of the kids in the hall as well initially, because it too had a story and like, it, I'm, I'm not saying that the kids in the hall don't excel in story based environments. I mean, Dave Foley was, you know, part of a fantastic ensemble cast um, when he was on news radio. Dave Foley also was, you know, did a fantastic movie called The Wrong Guy, which was also a long form story movie that was less sketch comedy and more just ridiculous comedy. Um, but yeah, it seems like when they all get together, they're stronger in the smaller sketches. And as opposed to, you know, the long form. And I don't know exactly why that is, but that's, I think, what a lot of people kind of have the opinion of. I think part of it is established expectations. With kids, that's probably true as well. Yeah. With kids in the hall as a TV series, uh, you were getting multiple different sketches through the course of the half hour or the hour, whatever the, whatever it exactly was. And that's what you expect. And it's easier, or I don't want to say it's easier, I don't have the writing experience, but my sense is it might be easier to deliver a funny experience in like a two to three, maybe five minute sketch, or in the case of some of the Bruce McCullough shorts, some really wild and crazy crap. Yeah. Because he did a lot of those weird avant-garde short movies, you know, during the Kids in the Hall TV series. But it's a different writing experience than trying to write you know, a full, coherent, 90-minute uh, movie. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, even with the sketch comedy show, there were five of them. But it's – from what I understand, it's like a similar thing that happens with most sketch comedy shows. Like people tend to kind of pair off into writing teams. And it's not all five of them pouring over each sketch – Together, like it's, it's like, you know, it might have been, you know, Dave and Mark writing a sketch or it might have been Scott and Bruce writing a sketch together or something. And so you, you have like different pockets of these voices, but it's never like a consistent voice for a long period of time. And that, you know, you, you couldn't have a kids in the hall movie and call it a kids in the hall movie if it was literally just written by, oh, I don't know, Mark McKinney and Kevin McDonald or something, like if it was just written by two of them and starring all of them, it might be a little bit strange, right? So like obviously that's why all of them were involved in the writing. Oh, actually interesting little tidbit though. Not all of them were technically involved in the writing. Dave Foley was not involved in the writing because by that point he had already kind of moved on to news radio, but because of contractual obligations that the Kisna Hall had with people, he had to be in the movie, but he didn't co-write it. And that's an interesting development too. Perhaps if he was present throughout the writing process, uh, well, actually not if, I'm going to say yes, it would be a different, uh, different experience if Dave Foley was there as part of the writing experience, we'd probably get a slightly different movie. Yeah. But again, like, I don't know if that would have made a better movie. I didn't say better. I said different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just an interesting thing because yeah, like, the kids in the hall, I think the strength comes from like a couple of them pairing off and, you know, really honing like an idea that's kind of a smaller idea that lasts for like, you know, three to five minutes, like a regular sketch does. And then, you know, you get, you know, everyone eventually throughout 
an episode gets kind of a chance at a sketch basically, but not every sketch is written by all five people, right? Because it's like a too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. Precisely. And uh, I think there's a, a parallel and a contrast to draw here between the experience of Kids in the Hall, a successful TV series going and doing a movie, and contrast that with Monty Python, the troupe who had a successful TV series run and then started doing movies. If you look at the Monty Python movies, they're a bit more similar to what the experience of watching them on TV was, whereas watching the Kids in the Hall movie, again, it being a 90-minute cohesive narrative experience – is radically different compared to watching their TV series. Yeah. But yeah, 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 that's, that's fair. And yeah, but I don't know, like having said that though, I mean, like maybe it also could be a thing of like, maybe it's because this movie wasn't directed by one of the kids in the hall either. Cause the Monty Python movies were directed generally like, at least the last couple were directed by like, you know, members of the, of the troupe, you know, like life of Brian, for example, was directed by Terry Jones, who was one of the members of Monty Python. True. Very true. Uh, and while one of the guys, one of the troupe members of kids in the hall did not direct this, uh, you know, direct the movie, uh, brain candy. It was directed by uh, a person named Kelly Macon who did direct several apparently episodes according to Wikipedia, several episodes of the Kids in the Hall show, the TV series. Yeah. So in theory, been around, you know, did the work, worked with the guys uh, several times at least, so had experience with them. But again, the experience of a movie movie is different than doing in the experience of a uh, sketch TV series. And this came out in 96, and my, my recollection is that it, it didn't really go over too well in the years Afterward, it's released in 25 years. It may have developed a cult following, but it's small and it just kind of fizzled out. And yet when this was released in 96, this kind of leads to another topic we can talk about here. That was kind of in the middle of one man in particular having a string of movies that were released that were maybe a mixed bag. And this kind of falls into the mixed bag uh, territory of that because this movie was produced by Lorne Michaels. Yeah, as was the, well, technically the television show Kids in the Hall was produced by him as well, even though it was also a co-production of, uh, like, CBC. But, yeah, Lorne Michaels, like, the movies he made, yeah, like, they were either, I mean, a lot of them were really great, like Wayne's World, Coneheads, Tommy Boy, classic. Um other ones of the period, like, you know, there's ones where I can honestly look at and go, I don't know if I've seen that or that really didn't really look like it was appealing to me or that one, frankly, just seemed like kind of a crappy movie. Like, you know, like Black Sheep, Stuart Saves His Family, Night at the Roxbury, like Ladies Man. Like these are movies that are just people look at and go, Ugh, maybe sometimes like Ladies Man. It's like, why was that movie made? Like, like that's a weird choice. Yeah, uh, I can see the, you know, Lauren Michaels thought process being, hey, you know, we had success turning Wayne's World as a sketch into a full fledged movie. Uh, and that was critically acclaimed, well received, made a lot of money, had a successful sequel. And so, yeah, just take sketches from SNL and turn them into fleshed out movies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I guess it all kind of depends, A, 
what the character is and B, what can you do with them? And I guess C, who's writing the movie? I yeah. mean, if you look at the, look at Wayne and Garth as characters, there isn't a whole lot of depth to them as characters, but because you had really the comedic chops of Mike Myers and Dana Carvey involved with the writing and, and just development of, of the characters in the script, uh, amongst others, you ended up with a great comedy called Wayne's World and also then Wayne's World 2. But yeah, what was there as a character for Stuart Smalley? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like even the guys from uh, the Roxbury segments, sure they were well received, but there's not a lot to flesh out a a, a ninety minute movie experience there. Yeah, I mean, having said that though, you could look at like Tommy Boy and go, ah, what's what's Tommy Boy? But Tommy Boy was a classic. Tommy Boy was a classic. But Tommy Boy was also a vehicle for Chris Farley. Yeah, which yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it's turning turning Chris Farley loose on the big screen. Yeah. So it was uh, yeah, an interesting time with uh, Lauren Michaels in Broadway video. I mean, having success at least for the first part of the '90s with SNL and then some SNL-related uh, movies, and then in the latter part, where I guess there was a bit of a, a downtime for popularity and maybe the writing of SNL that uh, uh, you got lesser and more lackluster SNL-related movies, and then in between you got things like, you know a big screen adaptation of Lassie that Lorne Michaels was the producer for. Yeah. Yeah. And then it wasn't really until like, you know, the early two thousands again, when it kind of picked back up in terms of like more consistent quality, like mean girls and hot rod and like MacGruber and stuff. So even though like not all of them were super well received, mean girls was well received, but yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting curiosity with, Nor- you know, the Lauren Michaels involvement there. Yeah, it is. Just, uh, something that, uh, kind of caught me when I was, uh, looking through and looking this up again. Like, oh yeah, Lauren Michaels. Oh yeah, he had that run of just, uh, stuff in the nineties. Some good, some bad, some kind of like, why is this a thing? <laughs> yep. Like, I recall my sister renting Stuart, uh, saves his family as well and just catching a, a few minutes of it and being like, I, I don't like this. I, I don't get it. Yeah. Now that, that is a one-dimensional character. <laughs> uh, but uh, nevertheless, perhaps you out there have a different opinion on uh, Lauren Michaels movies and uh, Kids in the Hall brain candy as a movie experience. If you do, we certainly want to hear from you. You can email us about that as well as anything else you have heard on this episode of the Arcade. Info at thearcadeshow.com is how you can write in the long form if you still do that. If not, and you just want to uh, send off a quick missive over social media, we're on Twitter and Facebook at the Arcade Show on both those platforms. And speaking of platforms, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this program on iTunes, on Google, Google Podcasts, our links or links to pages uh for us on both of those platforms there we go hard to say bear with me i'll get it out but direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the arcade show.com and that about wraps us up for this edition of the arcade and we thank you so much for joining us ladies and gentlemen uh women and children men women old young in between Everyone under the rainbow, we thank you so much for joining us, and uh, until next time, good night.
Good night.